Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from the home office in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And I have been so looking forward to connecting with Kelly Kerner, who is the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Georgia. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, sir. I'm excited to get Kelly's perspective because he has covered a lot of ground in his development career, uh, both in the uh, geographies that he has lived and worked in, but also the types of institutions where he has served uh, and the fundraising that he has done. And so this is going to be a lot of fun. Before we get to all of that, though, I do want to go back in time and know more about Kelly, who as a junior in high school was trying to figure out what his path might be. And my sense is tennis was a big part of that. Uh, so take us back to, to that period in your life. Who were you then? And uh, what led you to Foothill College? Yeah, that was a different um, human being. That was a different life. Um, honestly, the my my days pre um, working, you know, as a as a sentient adult um, post college, those days just seemed like a different person's life. But um, they were certainly formative. And a junior in high school. I mean, I was as clueless a junior in high school as you could have found. You, I don't think I really had um, an idea of where I would ultimately end up. I'm, I'm sure I was. I had enough of an ego to think that tennis was going to be my long-term future, and you know, I was going to be the next Jimmy Connors or John McEnroe, and um, that was going to pan out for me. And and life is just funny the way that it goes, and. Um, I did have the good fortune of being able to play some tennis in college and then a little bit professionally. Um, and so I did have that experience. And honestly, when I, when I think back about things that I learned um, early on in life, uh, most of them really do point back to the tennis court and lessons I learned on the court. Um, and actually lessons when you're a struggling professional tennis player and you're literally trying to make ends meet from week to week, um, you get to get into some pretty interesting decision-making processes and, um, they're not life or death. That's too dramatic, but they certainly, um, can make a huge difference in what happens in your life from week to week. And that I, I, I got a ton out of that. And I think part of my ability to be decisive and, um, to maybe step back and look at the, the core of an issue, um, and not get quite as bogged down in the sort of political side of things is, is maybe a, a thing that I learned there, but if you had asked a junior in or junior in high school, Kelly Kerner, um, what he would be doing in whatever year this is, 2021, um, I, I never, I, you'd have given me a thousand guesses and it wouldn't be this. Let's talk more about uh, the path that did lead you there. So you transferred from Foothill to UC Boulder, continued to play tennis. Uh, you studied broadcast journalism, focused on communications, which I imagine even if this world wasn't on your radar then. That was a pretty uh, relevant um, uh, space to, to establish your academic foundation. But just tell me a little bit about the experience there. And then ultimately, um, uh, did you make the leap into the pro tennis circuit right after college or what was the path? Yeah. Um, so Foothill was was kind of a rescue for me. I, I was a very, very ill-prepared um, first-year college student um, and actually went to the University of Southern California for a year um, because they had a really cool band and great cheerleaders. 
Um, and it was back when SC was not the most difficult school to get into, obviously. Um, and uh, I, I struggled there. I really honestly didn't know how to be a college student. Uh, so I, I kind of uh, uh, took a step back and retrenched and, and went to Foothill College to to uh, regain my footing academically, which was actually ended up being a really good decision. Um, it turned out Foothill had the, the best um, junior college tennis team in the country uh, at the time and the best coach um, in the country, maybe in all of college tennis. Um, and so I just stumbled back into tennis. I, I had left tennis for a year and then, then stumbled back into it at Foothill. And that, that launched my ability to go to CU um, at Boulder and um, to be able to play there. Um, I chose broadcast journalism, one, because my brother was a broadcaster and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, two, I thought um, I might have some ability in that area. And it sound, honestly, it sounded like a, a fun uh, major and a fun career. Um, and then probably the third deciding factor was I didn't have to take math. Um, so that, that was a, that was a bonus, um, kept playing tennis through, uh, through college and actually left college one semester or actually two classes early because I'd attained a professional, uh, an ATP ranking. Um, and the way it worked back then, I don't know how it works now, but you, you, depending on how you do in certain tournaments, you attain a certain number of ATP ranking points. You hang on to those points for the year from when you get them. And if you don't improve your ranking over that year, they fall off and you fall off the ranking computer. So it's really important for your progress in tennis to be able to stay ranked. That gives you access to tournaments. And so I left school so that I could go pursue that professional tennis career um, and did that for about two years. Um, and ran into all kinds of things like, um, gosh, it's hard to do it when you don't have sponsors that are actually giving you money weekly and you have to make money from week to week. My parents basically bought me an airline ticket and got me over to, to Europe to be able to play over there. And after that, I was, I was fairly on my own. Um, uh, and there's no animosity said with that. That's just, you know, that was back in the day. You, you know, I didn't have parents who were going to be able to bankroll a tennis career that may or may not go anywhere. Um, and then, uh, uh, some injuries, uh, and frankly, just living on almost no money for, for two years gets pretty exhausting. And it just, I, I met the woman of my dreams and that seemed like a much better option than struggling on the tennis circuit all over the world. And, um, so we ended up, I, I called it and we, I moved home and we got married and, um, you know, the rest is history. What was the, uh, the favorite tennis memory that you have um, either, you know, collegiately or when you were in Europe or on that, that tennis circuit, anything stand out? Um, that's, that's funny. I, I haven't thought about tennis memories in a long time. Um, you ever run into John McEnroe uh, on the circuit or anything yeah, like that? I, I did. I practiced with John McEnroe, uh, at one tournament. Uh, I mean, honestly, some of the most fun things I did were practice with people like McEnroe and Connors and, and Brad Gilbert. Um, I, you know, I guess uh, my, my first professional win, um, I wasn't a pro at that time, but it was the win that got me a, a, a professional ranking. Um, that was, 
that was really exciting. Um, and then I, I won a, a, a very small professional tournament in Paris of all places. Um, and that was, uh, that was pretty, uh, thrilling. Um, and got paid in cash and back when French money was francs and it was, uh, I think it was five francs to the dollar at the time, something like that. And so I got, I got this massive stack of francs that I was walking around Paris with all this cash in my body. I probably should have been mugged. And, um, but you know what, probably the absolute best thing that ever happened, not probably the absolute best thing that ever happened to me in tennis was, um, a match that I lost, um, uh, interestingly in Vermont, I was playing in a tournament there and, uh, uh, I was one step away from making the main draw of a pretty big professional tournament. I just had to beat this one guy. And, uh, ironically or coincidentally, the guy who beat me had just lost in the national championship, the NCAA national championship tournament, uh, in the finals. Uh, and he was a university of Georgia graduate or soon to be graduate. And he beat me soundly. And I was uh, pretty ticked off to the point that uh, I was ready to go break my very strict diet that I'd been on as a professional athlete. And I went into town and found this ice cream place and walked in and my wife was standing behind the counter and uh, uh, we're married 33 years now. That's unbelievable. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing. And, uh, Ice cream, uh, given in. I love it. Um, ice, ice cream therapy. Never could have imagined. Um, so I imagine when you walked into that ice cream shop, you still didn't have a sense that the business of college fundraising would be your career path. Um, ultimately, you started your fundraising career at Middlebury College, amazing institution in Vermont. Um, how did you get on that track? Um, was it a mentor recommendation, friend of friend? What, what was the path? Yeah, I actually, um, it even goes back further than that. Um, I started my professional career, you know, non-tennis professional career, uh, working for a startup company. And when that through a series of weird circumstances, that company was going to go under, I, I happened to have a conversation with somebody um, whose father was the director of athletics at the University of Portland in Oregon, where I was living at the time. And he said, you should go talk to my dad because he needs somebody to do fundraising for athletics. And I honestly had no idea what that was. So I went and talked to him. I got the job, did a few years doing fundraising there. And then my wife and I decided we wanted to have a family, but we didn't want to live far away from family when we did that. So we chose Vermont, which was near her family. Um, and honestly, I think back then, Brent, the reality is I don't think anybody went into fundraising with the idea that this is, you know, a profession, this is going to be a career, this is going to be something I'll stick with. It honestly just fell in my lap and um, it ended up, I really liked it. Um, I loved the mission of what we were trying to accomplish and support education. So when we decided to move to Vermont, um, I, I literally bugged Middlebury College. I think I, I contacted them weekly and this was before the internet. So phones and letters um, literally going out weekly until they finally had an opening and I applied for it and was, was successful in getting it. So I really did stumble into it and I did learn by the seat of my pants. I really didn't have anybody teaching me early on. It just was kind of sales, go out and do sales essentially. Uh, and then, uh, then 
when I got to Middlebury at about one iteration in, um, a gentleman was hired to be the boss of the major gift fundraisers there. And I was, I was very newly minted major gift fundraiser. And he ended up being one of the great mentors uh, in my life and, and certainly professionally. And, and he put me on the course, I think that ended up bringing me to where I am today. Cause honestly, the things that he taught me and the things I learned by watching him, um, I put into play every single day. Who was that Kelly? His name is Terry Mayo. Um, and Terry had had a, a career in fundraising, but he also uh, became a consultant um, out of his own his own shop that he created. And Terry was uh, at the time probably the the guru in gift and estate planning. Um, but he had a he had a relationship with our vice president who asked him to come in and kind of prospectively take on the role of managing the major gift fundraisers. And then it just it just clicked. It worked. And Terry. Uh, uh, and he's just really one of the greatest people I've ever known just as a person. He's a wonderful man, um, but incredibly knowledgeable, uh, obviously about gift and estate planning, but more so about um, people and how to work with people. And, and I just saw him um, cultivate relationships and, and, and really develop the team that worked for him uh, in a way that I've, I've rarely seen in the business. So if you could wave a magic wand and just instill some of Terry's uh, skills, values, vibes, you know, what are the one or two things that when you think about that formative mentorship experience that made you better, that uh, maybe could make other young fundraisers who might be listening right now better? Uh, first and foremost, it's never about you as the fundraiser. Uh, the, the relationship that you develop with a prospect, um, while yes, certainly there's a personal dynamic there that that you know has to be able to be fostered, but at the end of the day, somebody's not giving to your institution because you're the one asking. Um, you're the face of that institution, and you may be asking in a skillful, thoughtful way, but don't ever um, confuse the idea that. Um, your personality or your personal relationship with this person is, is the thing that is driving them to give. Because if you're doing that, then you're not actually doing the work that we should be doing, which, was, which is working with philanthropists to help understand how they want to change the world and then help to facilitate that um, idea with the institution for which you work. And I think you also have to go into it understanding that your institution may not be the place for them. And that may be what the work comes down to is you, you have these kinds of conversations and ultimately get to a place where you're like, yeah, I, you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish by investing here. But let me tell you about other places that I know that are doing that. And I think if you go in with this idea that you're really trying to help facilitate philanthropy um, and you develop relationships from that standpoint, I think that's where the real work happens. And Terry was just, uh, he was brilliant at getting you to step outside of yourself and think more about the prospect and what their goals were. And so, and then the, the basic one that everybody says, which kind of goes hand in hand with this is just listen, listen to people, ask a good question or two, and then just listen. And, um, you know, I've certainly been with a lot of fundraisers who are great at talking, 
um, but not as good at listening. And, and the ones that listen well are the ones that ultimately, I think, get to the right place with the donors. And Terry was a big, big proponent of that. And so would Terry, because there is a question of feedback, right? And whether you've experienced it where you're sitting with the fundraiser who likes to talk too much, or maybe Terry experienced that. Do you get to the point now where after the meeting or after maybe the Zoom, you just say to somebody, hey, you got to listen better? Or, you know, how direct are you or was he? Because I feel like sometimes that might be what the boss is thinking, but they don't want to hurt feelings or, you know, they might not say it or they keep it in until there's a performance review six months from now. I mean, how do you think about direct on the spot feedback versus trying to package it up over a period of time? So direct is good. And I think Terry was direct in his own way. And I think I'm direct in my own way. But I also think that you have to understand, you have to have sort of the emotional intelligence to understand how people think and how they work and how just kind of slamming somebody down directly doesn't necessarily help foster a learning environment. Uh, and, and I can remember Terry saying something like, uh, I'll try not to imitate him because that's, that's usually the place that all of us who are Terry acolytes go is we'll, we'll, we'll imitate um, the Mayo as we call them. Um, Terry would sort of ask the question of you, do you think that um, if we had asked the question in this way, would that have, would that have engendered the right, a better response or a different response? He would have a great way of getting you to think about your own um, performance as it was in an analytical way by just asking really good incisive questions. I try to do some of that myself. Um, Sometimes I'll use uh, something that he taught me that, that uh, he, had, he had such a wealth of experience at the time and I had basically zero or very little. You know, now I'm finally in a place where I do have a lot of reps behind me um, where I can say, hey, um, you know, I, I heard you doing this. You know, one time I was working with a donor who had a similar ethos and, it, and I, I used this idea or I or I asked this question in this way, do you think that would have been a, a way to get a different response? And um, I think that that, that does help. Um, and I think it, it, it does prove to be successful. I do think direct is important. You don't want to leave something unsaid because then you're not helping somebody to grow or, or uh, uh, develop their own skills. Uh, but I think there are ways of getting to that direct response in a way that has understands the the value of emotional intelligence and, and also um, being an encourager at the same time. You spent 14 years at Middlebury. It was during a time when a lot of money was raised. And uh, I just have to ask, were there specific gifts you were involved with or memories that you have from that time that, that stand out? Uh, probably my favorite all-time development story. Um, in which I was involved and it was a great kind of team effort because it was, uh, I had developed this relationship with an individual, um, my boss who uh, was overseeing major gifts and principal gifts at the time was kind of coaching me from the distance. And our president was also involved in it um, because it was that level of an ask. And so we had a, a prospect who was a former hockey player uh, former lacrosse player who was considering making a gift to, to name the hockey rink at, at Middlebury. 
And I'd gotten to know him pretty well over the course of a few years. Um, he's one of these guys that never gave a dime to the place. And then one day the phonathon called him and he gave $11,000 because um, he'd been out 11 years. So it was made sense to be to give $11,000. So, you know, back then that was a huge gift to come in through a phonathon. So I was in his office like three weeks later, literally. And um, he made his first six figure gift shortly after that. But then we were in this conversation after a couple of years of getting to know each other to talk about naming this hockey rink. And uh, every year Middlebury uh, goes to uh, a, a lacrosse, alumni lacrosse team goes to a club tournament out in Vail, Colorado. I don't know if they still do it, but I think they do actually. Um, and we would go out there and it'd be kind of one of the big alumni events of the year that wasn't in Middlebury because we literally have hundreds of people there. And he was there, he would always play on that alumni lacrosse team. And so saw him out there and we were talking and, and I said, you know, I won't use his name, but it, do you want to, do you want to make a decision about this? So, you, you know, you're ready to think about, you know, actually pulling the trigger. He goes, well, why don't you put something down on paper for me? And then um, let's talk tomorrow and, you know, we can, we can go from there. So Kelly, can I just ask, like, did he have a number in his mind already did you, and, and how do you even decide what it costs to name the hockey arena? I mean, how circular is that? Um, it was pretty pro forma, actually. Uh, if I recall correctly, um, the total project of the hockey rink was like $18 million. But the, the rink and um, the uh, stadium portion of that project were about $10 million of that. And at the time, we we had a naming stipulation that you wanted fifty percent of the. Uh, Got so it. so we asked. We were asking for five million. I honestly don't remember if he knew that five million was the number. I, I really don't. I, I kind of think he didn't. Um, he knew it was a lot. He knew it was multi multi millions. But so he says. He says, you know, just put something down on paper, and we'll talk tomorrow after the game. And so this guy is the blue collar of all blue collar guys who made uh, a fortune in um, uh, on the Chicago Board of Trade and um, just probably probably the one of the all time great traders on the Chicago Board of Trade and just still played lacrosse with the same enthusiasm and aggression he had played when he was in college. He's just one of these guys who was basically bulletproof and. So next day game happens. He's like, yeah, meet me back at my hotel room. So I go knock on his door. And what he doesn't know is I had spent almost the whole night working on a proposal for him that I wrote on the fly again before the internet. And so I'm, I'm getting a fact. I, I, I write this thing. I fax it back to my boss. She edits it up. She faxes it back to me. I do some more editing. My, my president is in, actually in London at the time. I fax him the proposal and it's like, I don't know what time it was, seven o'clock at night or something in Vail. I fax it to, to London. He gets up that next morning at like four, gets the proposal, calls me. It's two in the one in the morning, whatever in Vail. President calls me on my phone in the hotel room because again, we didn't have cell, cell phones at that time. Talking to him about it in the middle of the night, we finally tighten it all up, get it perfect. It's just 
amazing four-page proposal that we put together in a matter of hours. I knock on his door after the game the next day. He opens the door, and I, I'm trusting he's never going to hear this podcast, but all he's got on is lacrosse shorts. He has blood that's dried on the side of his face. He had lost two of his teeth playing hockey, so he had false teeth that he used to take in and out. Those were not in. So he answers the door, shirtless, no teeth, blood on the side of his face. It's like, hey, Kelly, come on in. And I'm like, okay. Um, so we sit down at the couch and I said, you know, so-and-so, this is, you know, thought a lot about what you said. And, you know, here's, here's the proposal we'd like you to consider. And I hand it to him and it's four pages and it's beautifully typed up and all this stuff. And he goes, ah, oh, geez, I just thought you'd like write something down on a napkin and give it to me. <laughs> Like we just spent untold number of hours working on this. And I said, well, would you just do me the favor and read it? Because I think it's important you understand the, the gravity of what you're considering and, and what it will say to the community, what it will say to your family um, and so forth. And he's like, okay. So he reads the proposal while I'm sitting there and he kind of sets it down. And goes, Geez, I never thought about it that way. And um, basically we had said, you know, you should consider naming it after, yourself because it would say a lot to your your kind of cohort um, that you had done this and it might spur others to think about philanthropy in that way or you can name it after somebody that's important to you and your family so ultimately he said I don't want to name it after me you know I don't want any recognition and then I said what about your dad and it was like okay okay uh, all right I'll name it after me but I'll do it in honor of my dad and so anyway, he, he ends up doing it, does the gift, names it after himself, has his dad come to the ribbon cutting ceremony, cuts the ribbon on the, on the rink. Um, it just was from the standpoint of just kind of a funny circumstance and a great outcome from the standpoint of having multiple people involved in creating the right kind of proposal, even though we didn't really need it. Um, I do think it mattered to him. I do think it ultimately was really important to him that that his family um, could be a part of it and would would see the the value of what he had done. So, and it you know from a personal standpoint, it was probably the the gift that launched me into a new level of fundraising. I you know I had done a lot of kind of six figure gifts up to that point, and this was the first real seven figure gift I'd been involved in, and. Um, you know, I think when you, when you do that, it gives you the confidence to, to understand how to take that next step. I love it, Kelly. That's such a poignant memory and uh, a great story and really appreciate you sharing. And I'm sure the, uh, you know, every time you've been back to campus since, you know, seeing that arena, I'm sure it brings back, uh, some of those, <laughs> some of those memories you spent, um, uh, you just had this really interesting period after going deep at Middlebury to then being able to step into your own vice presidential role uh, at Bates. And then you spent some time at Bowdoin in the senior uh, uh, role. And that's about as much NESCAC experience as anybody uh, can have. And so not everybody in our audience knows what the NESCAC is. In a certain regard, it's like the polar opposite of the SEC, uh, or maybe not, but I, I think that's fair to say. But just tell me a little bit about that small college New England vibe, Bates and Bowdoin being big rivals, but just unbelievably tight knit alumni communities. Um, what are some of your highlights in making the move to Bates? And also just 
reflections on being the leader for the maybe the first time and really kind of having that full purview and having to make that leap from you know rainmaking major gift officer to leader of an organization which is not always easy for folks yeah i think it's i think it's hard for uh, i mean maybe maybe it's not hard for everybody but i think anytime you do go from that more of a um, practitioner um, to somebody who has to kind of drive the vision there's definitely a learning curve. Um, you know, I think, I think these jobs are three years at a minimum, um, till you start kind of figuring it out and, and maybe even as much as five years, uh, to, to get the full scope and understanding of, of the role. So, uh, you know, I, I had at, at Middlebury, I was pretty sure I was just going to stay there and try to try to live out my career there and, and let the opportunities from that college come where they would. But, this, this thing, again, from Bates just dropped out of the sky uh, and, and was offered the opportunity to be VP there, kind of out of the blue. And honestly, uh, this is where I just kind of look back on the tennis experience and say that that really had some influence on, on the way that I approach things, which was just to kind of triage and step back and say, what's most important? Um, when I look at an organization, what is most important about um, helping this place to be successful. And this is another situation where I had a mentor step into my life completely out of the blue. And it was a gentleman um, who lived in Maine at the time and had a long career in, in uh, really uh, healthcare fundraising more than anything. Um, a guy named David Lawrence, and he still, he still does a little bit of uh, uh, council on the side, but uh, David was there sitting in their interim role just to kind of keep the seat warm while they did this search. And I'll never forget one of the first things that David said to me, and David is a, he is a master technician of communication and understanding how words matter. And he taught me more than anybody that words matter. And he said, he said two things to me right off the bat that that really um, stuck with me and I still think about almost every day. Number one is, as a vice president, your job is not as much to raise money as to cause money to be raised. So when you put your role into that perspective, that you're trying to cause money to be raised, you're thinking about how do I elevate the work of all those other people around you? Um, and it, it, it takes it off of your plate personally, but then creates this responsibility of really helping a team to grow and, and, and be better. Um, and honestly, I, I think I say that to people um, once a month still, um, you know, how are we, I might not say in exactly in those words, but how are we causing money to be raised? What are we doing to think about that? The other thing he said to me that, um, and I'm, I'm kind of a goof, and I tend to say things to try to be funny sometimes, and I'm not. And I can um, let the wrong words exit my mouth um, uh, without thinking. And he said to me, and, and he didn't have any knowledge that that's who I was or am, but he said, you need to understand now that you have this title, your words will be heard differently than they were heard before. And so when you say something, you have to understand that those people hearing those words are going to digest them differently. Everybody's going to digest them differently, but you want to be rock solid sure when you say something that um, 
you're saying what you really want to say. And yet you understand that, you know, you think you said something that wasn't that big a deal to you, but it's a really big deal to somebody who's, who's down the chain a ways and, and doesn't quite have access to, to leadership. So I'm, I'm still guilty of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, but I'm a lot more cognizant of it mm. as a result of the, that, that those words of advice at the time. So uh, David and David has been a, a constant help to me over the course of my time since being at Bates and we're not as in, in contact as much as we used to. Um, and honestly, it's to my detriment. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a statement about this job and the volume of work that is in this job that causes me not to look up and look around and say, Hey, I need, I need some help. Um, as often as I probably should. Um, so I was, was just listening to something on that front, Kelly, that's, uh, I just heard a quote yesterday, two days ago, that was relationships are always important, but rarely urgent. And just the dynamic of, as you are in these sorts of positions, it's always the urgency, the priority items that need to be done yesterday that always get the mind share. Um, and so there are relationships like the one you just shared um, that are super important, but how do they bubble up to the top uh, of that to-do list in the context of our day-to-day life? It's, um, it just struck me uh, after hearing you say that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good example of, um, you know, in a sense, it's almost like you, you may get to a point where you take that relationship for granted as opposed to recognizing that there's uh, there's true value in in more consistent contact um, and hopefully it's from a two-way standpoint as well yeah. um, you know so I'll, I'll tend to call David now if something's blown up and I'm just not sure how to how to attack mm. it. he's just he's just a really really wise person who has the ability to kind of dissect things down into um, the component parts and get you to see what's really important. Um, I, I, I do want to ask, um, you started at Bates, if I'm not mistaken, about five minutes before the financial crisis. And <laughs> I'm just really curious, sort of, especially given the disruption that we've all experienced over the last 18 months, um, as you think about just showing up, I'm sure, you know, super excited, you're in the top spot at one of the big revenue functions of the organization and then the world sort of collapses and and I imagine there was pretty significant exposure within the Bates community and just what was what was that like yeah Bates was uh was not optimally positioned um for that financial downturn and not that most schools were but um you know they they had uh they got hit pretty hard um on the endowment side um in a weird way, as I look back on it, I think it actually bought me some time um, because honestly, there wasn't a whole bunch of fundraising to be done at that moment because people weren't going to be having conversations about you know major gifts while they're watching their portfolios go down 30%. And so I had a big job of, of trying to figure out who this team was that I had inherited, um, who should stay, who should go. Um, and how was I going to fill the spots that were empty and how was I going to grow the team? Because it, it was a team that really needed to be grown. 
Um, so it did give me some breathing room to really step back and, and do some analysis, maybe in a way that uh, was fortunate for my level of experience at the time. And it, it slowed everything down enough that I could be a little bit more plotting and um, hopefully get to an overall better place uh, coming out of it. So, you know, that first year was definitely a blur. Um, financially, things were rough. We didn't raise a whole lot of money that that first year. In fact, I, I think we exceeded the prior year, but only marginally. Um, but I really spent a lot of time working on the personnel side um, that first year. And, and that ultimately um, panned out to be really, really important. And then you made the move uh, uh, to to Bowdoin, uh, sort of arch rival there. Um, and so, what was uh, what was the catalyst, the reaction, um, and uh, and then I definitely want to make sure we have time to talk about your current position. Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's quickly. It's it's a, a classic example of you know the the VP role is often um, a vulnerable position when the president leaves. Um, it's fully within the rights and expectations of the new president to bring in their own person. And so uh, our president left suddenly because she was um, given the opportunity to essentially have her uh, all-time career favorite opportunity fall on her lap. And I couldn't fault her, but you know, I thought she was gonna be there seven years, she was there three years. And my wife and I were looking around at each other going, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? We just moved to, to Maine three years ago. We love it here, we wanna stay. And as it turned out, just, you know, as coincidence to have it, um, I, you know, I think it is divine providence. Actually, the, the VP at Bowdoin was at the very same time leaving. Uh, and the president knew that I was um, kind of sitting around and, and wondering what was going to happen next. And it just the timing just worked perfectly. And, and mm -hmm. he, he offered me an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Uh, I didn't know. You know, it just all seemed very fast to me and, and kind of out of the blue. And I, I landed at Bowdoin and, um, you know, Bowdoin was an incredibly well-oiled machine. And so I was going from kind of a fix-it situation at Bates to, all right, jump in and just basically steer the ship. Um, and the ship's got tons of momentum and, you know, just don't get in the way. And which was okay, but um, it, it, it was not, for me, it wasn't probably the best fit for the way that my brain worked. Um, I, I had a lot of thoughts about change and entrepreneurial ways of approaching things. And I'm just not sure that the time that was going to be the best match for Bowdoin. But the, the thing that was great about Bowdoin was, I mean, certainly gave me insight into a, an incredibly effective fundraising organization. And I, and I learned a lot by watching it. Had I not been at Bowdoin, I don't think I would have gotten the call from the search firm about the University of Georgia job. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, what felt like it was going to be, uh, you know, existential crisis for us in Maine ended up putting us into a role at, at Bowdoin that led to this job at, at, at Georgia that honestly is the best uh, thing that has happened for me professionally um, without question and has been an incredible blessing to our family. Bowdoin has fewer than 20,000 alumni or right around that number maybe. And uh, Georgia has roughly 10X the number of alumni. So I am curious, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you were talking to the search firm, you know, how much uh, 
that mattered because I think on paper, you wouldn't say three NESCAC schools. Yeah. Logical next step is leading uh, the, you know, SEC and Georgia being, uh, I, I did read about the tagline, the birthplace of public higher education in America, which is very cool. And I didn't appreciate that. And it's also the first time I've ever heard a university described as both a land grant and a sea grant university. So just tell me a little bit about the uh, first time you heard about the role and why you even threw your hat in the ring, maybe why they wanted your hat in the ring and then uh, why it's been such a fulfilling experience. I accused the search. I knew that the woman who was running or was co-running the search, I knew her from some work I'd done at Middlebury. And uh, so I had a decent relationship with her, although I hadn't been in touch with her all that much. And I, I, I was being, you know, I was letting those words fly out of my mouth that shouldn't fly out of my mouth. And I said, uh, look, Ann, um, I think you're just putting me into this search because you want to have a liberal arts guy to show the client that you've got this really broad pool. I'm not really a candidate. I'm not interested in getting into a search where I'm just kind of there as window dressing. And she, she kind of like said, stop. I wouldn't call you unless I thought you were a legitimate candidate for this job. You need to be in this search. So we talked more about the role. I hung up the phone. I said to my wife who was standing literally next to me and I said, I think we have to look at this. And I think if I were to get it, I think we have to take it. So we need to know going into it that if we're going to take that first step, there's a there's an ultimate step and we have to be willing to do it because I don't want to go through this and then pull out. So, you know, we talked a lot about it and decided, yep, okay, let's do it. Um, I think the reason it worked, um, one is the, the work is the work. Um, you know, the, all, all of the, the principles of what we do here are the same as they were at Bates and Bowdoin and Middlebury. Um, it's just a different scale and a different complexity. And I think for somebody coming from my background to University of Georgia, the biggest, most difficult thing was understanding the complexity, um, getting my arms around it and trying to understand how um, a development and alumni relations operation can exist within the public sphere, because it's the public side is very different than the private side. And um, I think that took me a good three or four years before I really had a grasp on what that meant. Uh, I had plenty of missteps um, early on. And uh, my boss is um, brilliant on the public politics side of this work. And so he's a good um, counterbalance to me where I'll start to say something or do something. And he'll say, nope, you can't do that. Because if you do that or say that, it will be heard this way. This person will report it over here and then we'll have an issue in this place. And I'm like, I can't even see that. I have no idea how you got there, but he could see it like it was clear as day. So I think um, I got this role because um, I, I think my relationship or, or, or the the interaction that I had with the president and some other leadership here um, made it clear that I had kind of the, the mindset and the energy to bring to um, this work. Now, I know, uh, and this is not me just like sandbagging or anything. I know there were people going, what did Georgia just do? 
who did they just hire? This guy doesn't know anything about public higher ed. And they're absolutely right to think that. Um, so it was a massive, you know, people talk about a fire hose. I don't know what's a bigger conduit than that, but there's something bigger that I was trying to drink from. And it was, it was rough going for the first really 18 months. Um, but ultimately I think because of the relationship that I have with the president, um, because of, um, kind of where Georgia's fundraising and alumni relations world was at the time, I could bring some best practices from what we had done at, at Bowdoin and Bates and Middlebury and apply those here and scale them out. And, and they worked, they made it, they made a difference. Uh, and then also we had the financial backing um, when I came in here to grow the team in the way that it needed to grow. So again, it was just kind of looking at where are the holes, what are the opportunities, you know, what are the things that we've done in other places that I think could work here? And then just try to patch them in there and, and, and make them go. And the bottom line of this entire thing, and it's the story of any kind of work that we do, um, it's all about the people. And this, there was a fantastic group of people in place here. Um, certainly, we made a few little changes when, when I started, but we had a really good group of people. I hired an extraordinary number two who came in and then went about hiring uh, I can't remember what the total number was, but I'm going to say more than 50 people over the course of a few years uh, who were all outstanding. And so we took strength and we built on strength with, with new talent. And um, we've accomplished the goal that I said, I told the president on literally day two here that I thought was the most important goal for us was not whatever our number was going to be for the capital campaign, uh, because I didn't at the time, I didn't have a clue what it was going to be. Um, but more, we need to build the right team and we need to build a team that will be successful regardless of leadership. So whether I'm here or you're here, Mr. President, or somebody else, this team needs to be the right team for the University of Georgia to just persist regardless of who's in that leadership role. And I think we've done that. Kelly, tell me about the Georgia Commitment Scholarship Program, which is, I know, something you're proud of and if there are generalizable lessons that maybe based on that uh, experience could be applied at, at other institutions, because it does feel like a, uh, a compelling way to address, to address a need that is probably pretty uniform across the country. Yeah, it's particularly uh, uniform at public institutions. And that is that, you know, we're, we're not unique, but we have an incredible percentage of our students who are Pell eligible um, I read 20, 20%, I think yes, is what I, what I saw. It is. It's, it's probably a little bit more than that. Um, but, you know, that's that's a huge number when you consider that we have uh, about 30,000 undergrads. Um, that's a huge number of, of our students who are Pell eligible. So you're not going to just eliminate that problem um, tomorrow with with a big gift or a big effort. Um, so we, we decided to look at that sort of the bottom thousand students who, um, who are frankly uh, nearly destitute except for um, the scholarships that they're able to get. So they're kids who, uh, you know, in today's vernacular are food insecure. Um, there's several hundred kids, maybe 250 kids, give or take, who are literally homeless who go to the University of Georgia and couch surf and, and go from apartment to apartment or some stay in their cars in order to get an education at Georgia, because 
the way the state is set up, if you're a if you're a high grade student in high school, your tuition will be taken care of. Um, so kids that come here who have done really well in high school, tuition's off the table. So that's a great thing, but they still have about a twelve to fourteen thousand dollar gap that they have to cover for food and lodging and books and fees, et cetera, et cetera. So our, our goal with the Georgia Commitment Scholarship was to try to close that $12,000 gap to a certain extent for as many of those thousand students as we could. We solicited uh, a $30 million gift from a large foundation in Atlanta um, with the idea that what we were doing was going to help this, um, this most endangered group, I guess. And um, they really liked the concept. And basically what we did was we created a one-to-one -one matching program for gifts of 50, 75, or a hundred thousand dollars. And so, you know, somebody makes a gift of 50, it becomes a hundred. What's good about it, what's different about it. And I, I don't know that this works the same way at a private institution, but here, when we get a gift of endowment that goes into our endowment, it has to sit for a full fiscal year before it creates a spending budget to be used. By creating that match, we actually started the scholarship immediately. So we made it expendable dollars. Uh, part of it was expendable dollars in order to start allocating that scholarship immediately, which then enabled the endowment to grow unfettered for four years. And going through our first iteration, we actually ended up better off um, through the first iteration as far as the dollars we could allocate once once those expendable dollars were used up and then, then the endowment kicked in, we we're actually able to spend more off of the endowment than the expendable dollars were. So that's actually grown after our first run through with this. Um, so it's a, it's a scholarship program that hits at our biggest need. It hits it immediately. It has life-changing impacts. Um, you know, as anybody in this business knows, when you help somebody with need-based financial aid, um, it's not just changing their life. It's probably changing the trajectory of that family. Most of these kids are first generation. Most of these kids come a fam or all of these kids come from a family whose annual uh, household income is less than $12,000 a year. Their annual household income is less than $12,000 a year. And generally these kids who are coming to school here are part of that $12,000. So if they're here and they're working three or four jobs, they're actually sending money home while they're trying to figure out what meal they're going to eat that day, while they're trying to figure out what books they don't have to buy. So these scholarships, when we get them $3,500 extra dollars a year, transforms their life. And the Kelly, bigger can, Go ahead. Can I just ask, because you started talking about a state-of-the-art hockey arena, which is... Um, an amazing gift you were a part of. But when you think about the transformative impact at an individual student level, harder to maybe see that or feel that when you're talking about in the Georgia commitment, hunger versus being full, homeless versus shelter. And my question is, how do you tell that impact story, not only to the donors, but also to your staff. I mean, how do you like, without, you know, while being sensitive of student privacy and, you know, not necessarily wanting to, uh, you know, shine too much of a light on the individual story, but at the same time, like that has to be an, 
such a game changer, which I feel like is so marketable when you then talk about solving that problem at a bigger and bigger scale. So what have you done there? What would you like to do? Any lessons learned? Um, because some of those stories just have to be profound. Yeah, it's the single proudest thing I've done in my career um, from a development standpoint, um, because you know we, we like to say we're about impact and we're about changing lives. And oftentimes that gets lost um, you know, the, the, it's subtly about that, or, you know, you can, you can derive some sort of story out of it. This truly is. And, um, honestly, we can do all that. We have, we have lots of, um, I mean, it almost sounds like GoFundMe meets the university of Georgia. I mean, it is that sort of impact direct to student in a way that isn't always common. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's not a not an incorrect uh, comparison. Um, you know, we can put together all the one pagers, all of the websites uh, that we want to put together. The thing that that makes a difference is when you hear from a student how this changed your life. And I defy anybody to hear almost any of these stories and not end up in tears um, because it really it is it is fully transformative for their life. And these are kids that otherwise, I mean, I, how many times I've heard from a student, I got into my dream school and I couldn't attend until this scholarship happened. Um, I mean, that's almost got to make donors angry. I mean, uh, you know, some of the people that are, that are, I'm sure such passionate supporters, mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to get the blood boiling when you hear that sentence. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and certainly it's a reason why we have over 600 of these now in place. Uh, and, you know, it, we, we are, our foundation is, is fabulous because, it, you know, as they've had uh, good years financially, they will allocate some extra dollars for the match. So building on that original 30, uh, I think at this point, the, the foundation has added in about 8 million of their own dollars for matching purposes. Uh, in order for us to go out and, and fulfill more of these matches um, than we would have otherwise. And uh, it, it just, it's so compelling. Uh, you know, we have obviously FERPA is very tough on us. So, you know, students have to grant um, their, their permission to be contacted, to share their name. But there are some who get it so completely that they want to be evangelists. And so they've let mm-hmm. us videos and uh, write their stories in magazines. And um, this is more than any other fundraising initiative I've ever been a part of. We've had gifts come in out of the blue from people who aren't even University of Georgia people who read Georgia Magazine, where they read about this kid's story and getting a Georgia Commitment Scholarship. Um, we, you know, videos that we make go viral and, and you know, it, it leads to dollars. So, when, when I think, you know, I told the story about raising the money for the hockey rink because it's a unique and funny story. And, but you're right, it's, it's a hockey rink. And, you know, it, it made a difference for that school and for those kids that, and for the community there also, because the community got to use it. But uh, the thing that I love about uh, our public universities is our mission is undeniable. And what we get to affect with our work is, undeniable. And when you meet these students and you see how the trajectory of their life is completely changed, it makes it so that getting up for me in the morning and coming to work is pretty dang easy. Um, it just, it's, um, 
it's really compelling. And, and as much as I get the value of the small liberal arts college and what it does for people and, and the kinds of networks it creates and the success it can bring to people's lives, which is all very valid. Um, the boots on the ground element of being in a public university is something I, um, if I, if I stay in higher ed for the rest of my career, uh, I shouldn't say it out loud because, you know, as soon as you say it out loud, it, it becomes false, but, uh, I, I hope I'm in public higher ed just cause I love the, I love the mission. Well, Kelly, there's so much more I wanted to cover, but I think it's important that we really um, conclude on such a positive note. And you just made a pretty powerful case for public higher education and the University of Georgia specifically. Are you hiring right now? We've got a lot of folks who listen to this podcast in the advancement world all over the country. Um, what's the state of affairs as it relates to team building at UGA right now? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, I feel like we're in a constant state of hiring. Uh, we've just like a lot of uh, public universities have just come out of a hiring freeze. Um, and so we just really reopened our doors for hiring in a big way um, in the last month or two. So we have a bunch of positions available right now. Um, and that's going to, that's going to be a constant. Um, we had an extraordinary retention rate um, over the course of our campaign. It was in the high 90 percentage uh, level, but you know, you can only keep young, ambitious, talented people in place so long before they need to take that next step and they can't always take it here. So we've had some attrition of late and certainly things like the flexibility of teleworking has caused people to look elsewhere. Um, so we have openings, uh, in all different departments, um, and it's a constant state of affairs. And one of the things we did when I started here was we created a talent management team, and our talent management team really takes care of that aspect of things for us. So there's actually a newsletter that we have that goes out that basically says, come work at University of Georgia and here's why and here are the opportunities that we have. So if somebody is interested in, in working here, they should, they should get on our website and uh, check that out and, and maybe subscribe to it. Um, and then, um, you know, always happy to talk to anybody. People can reach out to me anytime. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your career path, Kelly. And I was doing a little bit of digging before we started recording. And uh, it's been almost 10 years since our first email exchange. And so that was when you were at Bowdoin. And uh, it's been really fun to, to just be connected uh, on, our, on our mutual journey here. So uh, thank you for your support and your willingness to join. Uh, and with that, Brent signing off here in Rhode Island with Kelly Kerner from the University of Georgia. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.